I'm Dan and I'm a Qantas frequent flyer. And I'm Alex and I'm also a Qantas frequent flyer. Welcome back to uh, this safety video with frequent flyers here. Oh, okay, I can't, I can't keep it up. This is <laughs> welcome back to On Air. You probably since last week have seen what we are referencing there, which is this new Qantas safety video, Qantas, the National Airline of Australia, that has generated a wide variety of opinions, <laughs> I'll say, to be polite. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking Okay. I guess nor. <laughs> or nor. I mean, what did you think? We were just speaking a few weeks ago about the role that onboard safety videos have to play in terms of getting passengers key info, you know, on a serious note, seeing the real importance of that play out with the Japan A350. What do you think now that Qantas <laughs> have come forward with this 10-minute Hollywood production Dan. Yeah, well, I wish I hadn't read other people's reactions before I watched it because I there I like saw everyone talking so much shit about it. And I was like, I wish I could have formed my own opinion. And I loved Qantas old safety video with the history of Qantas going back to like the 1920s. It felt like such a classic, good mix of a safety video and something entertaining. But yeah. Even though I had seen people's negative opinions of it, as soon as I watched it, I was like, okay, I would have came come to the same conclusion because I don't think they even talk about anything safety related until at least a, a minute into the video. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit bizarre, isn't it? I mean, the reality is that airlines are often trying to outdo each other with these videos. And there are some that we like, and we've spoken about it before, haven't we? There are some that are done in quite a tasteful way, that are visually beautiful and so on. But... I'll be honest now, my own personal opinion, there is a lot about this video I just found absolutely bizarre. Not least the fact that the video itself, I mean, the storytelling is mostly told by random, perfect looking individuals who are <laughs> simply introduced as, for example, you know, Mark, and then it says underneath, Qantas Frequent Flyer. And then it's like, <laughs> Stephanie, Qantas frequent yeah. flyer. So, they're totally so not just paid actors who they happen to also say, oh, they're Qantas frequent flyers. Totally I mean, not. who, who uh, where did they, where did they find these? I mean, was there, okay, here we go. If we, we know we have quite a lot of listeners down under, uh, good day. What we wanted to ask is if you are members of the Qantas frequent flyer program, did you get an email from Qantas with the chance to be in their new safety video? Exactly. Because... <laughs> I mean, if if you didn't, where did they uh, where where did they get these guys? Yep, they got them on the actor marketplace. I think that's where. But the yeah. I mean, it's just so weird how, for some reason, sometimes safety videos can get away with being like promotional, like Air New Zealand does that well. But this just way crossed the line into being like just a random ad for Qantas and places they don't even fly to and it completely left the realm of safety like if you're going to make such a long video and then after two minutes explain to me how to fasten my seatbelt at least just do it on a plane like just put the airplane part in so that it's obvious instead of being like we're sitting on a boat or wherever they're sitting and it's you know it's not even part of the story which is why it feels so unnecessary 
Just make it yeah. easy. Like, just make a two-minute, 90-second safety video and then show this video afterwards so people can ignore it. And the crew can perform their duties and they don't have to stand there for 10 minutes looking at people as they watch the video to point out the exits. That's the craziest thing of all about this. And as you, I think one of the craziest things about all of this, which has generated all, all that kind of global reaction. And by the way, this is not just us reacting to this. If you just type in Qantas safety video now on online or on YouTube, this has gone global. This is everywhere, especially, I mean, there are news shows talking about this. This, of course, dominated the conversation in Australia. There were late night talk shows taking the absolute pee out of some parts of this video. It has been the discussion of the breakfast programs. I, I've seen some of my cousins speaking about it, kind of wondering why, you know, why has it been done in a way in which, for example, firstly, as you just touched on, most of the places that they show and the theme of the safety video is to show their frontline team members and frequent flyers taking a journey to what they perceive to be their most magical destinations around the world. Most of the places shown in the video, Qantas do not fly to. So, for example, <laughs> there, there, there are a whole variety of destinations that not only do Qantas not even fly to that destination, they don't even go anywhere near to, to that country. So that was, I thought, an interesting choice. You know, the northern lights are shown. Uh, there are scenes from souks in Marrakesh in Morocco. It's uh, it's an interesting one. The other part that I didn't, that I found a bit bizarre, not least two women standing on the beach helping each other with oxygen masks. It, it just, <laughs> yeah. it, it, nothing fit, uh, as you said. Um, and not least the fact that the beach scene was interview was introduced by uh, it came up Qantas frequent flyer Alex. I was like, here we go. <laughs> this is my moment. Here we go. I'm about to tell you. No, it's another Alex. Not Alex specialty and, uh, is beach. It kind of is. Yeah. You know, if you were a Barbie, yeah. you would also be beach. <laughs> Ken, you would be beach. I, I, I would. I would be the beach. What? Um, so, what did you say? No, you know how Ken and Bar <laughs> like Ryan Gosling. His specialty is beach. I feel like that would be yours oh, okay. too because like yeah you and your family are are beach obsessed. We are beaches. Um you're right. This scene, did you see the scene in Rome where the family are walking through Rome and they're like we're we're in Rome, we're about to surprise Nono. Did you see that part? <laughs> so can I be honest, after 4 minutes, yeah. I just stopped watching. I was like, I'll see this on some Qantas flight sometime. I don't want to waste my time at home. Watch it. I get the gist already. I don't need to waste six additional minutes on this useless Qantas ad. See, the 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 real warning there is: let's just hope you don't have that exact reaction when you're sat on board a Qantas aircraft, exactly. tuning out of of key safety information. That's the that's the actual substance to what we're talking about here. Yep. So now I don't know how to put my oxygen mask on. Thank you, Qantas. It's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Well, the, the, the bit I wanted to talk about was this family. They're walking through central Rome and they say, well, we're going to our favorite restaurant just off of Campo de Fiori. And it's like, well, you know, most Italians would take issue with eating in tourist trap restaurants yeah. in central Rome, which which isn't really known for good food at all with some few uh, few local exceptions but the overwhelming majority of them it's kind of a steer clear message if you're in those tourist trap roads and this perfect looking family that have supposedly just come off of a Qantas flight they're walking down and, and then they surprise Nonno who's 
totally surprised to see them and so on and so on. And this scene is what some of the late night talk show hosts in Australia took issue with because they were saying, it's all just weirdly unrealistic. So you're watching this scene and then suddenly she turns to the camera and she's like, your mobile phone should be switched to flight mode. I'm like, oh, this is this is a safety video. You, <laughs> you totally forget. You totally tune out. So yeah, there we go. That's the it, that's the risk of all of. I mean, it, it, that that is funny because it's like them. Someone being like, my favorite place in Spain is the Torremolino Strip. <laughs> I highly recommend the restaurants. Goodness, here. <laughs> <laughs> like it's literally that type of thing. Anyway, so that's what happened down under. Unfortunate bad job by Qantas in conveying safety and and we should say the reason for them trying to make this type of frequent flyer and employee focused video is to help with their PR image as we've spoken about many times on the podcast Qantas is not very popular among Australians right now for good reason but this is sort of supposed to be a look we care about our flyers we're showing what matters to them instead of actually addressing what matters to them. That's that's sort of what <laughs> what the bigger issue is here as well. Have you ever dabbled with the Qantas Frequent Flyer program? Yeah, I've redeemed a lot of points through it. I've never credited a flight to it, but redeeming points is fine. It's good for some Emirates redemptions. Yeah, that's good. And I, what's funny is how the relationship has drifted, right, between Qantas and Emirates since those early years when they really kind of paired up and were operating on behalf of each other with all different kinds of levels of partnerships depending on where you were flying to and it's like it's the it's the slow witness that we have witnessed of them gently flying away from each <laughs> other and this agreement that they have being kind of gently unwound in such a way that hasn't been too noticeable but you know if you go back a little over eight years ago, this was the the the, the power couple of the aviation sector <laughs> long haul kangaroo route, you know, yeah. Emirates and Qantas. I know, but it's still interesting to me that Emirates and Qantas are still closer than Qantas and Qatar, even though Qatar is one world. So theoretically, they should be much closer. But as far as I'm aware, there's pretty much no cooperation there. In fact, Qatar Airways is partners with Virgin Australia even though yeah. they should be partnered with Qantas. It's all a bit messy. Yeah, you're right. It is, it is. And it's also funny to see how protectionist Australia, which is always quite reluctant to allow foreign carriers, i.e. kind of non-Aussie carriers, to fly into Australia and expand their frequencies. And we documented on the podcast what happened where uh, Australia were kind of found with Alan Joyce, the former Qantas CEO, and the prime minister at the time to have been all working together to ensure that they keep out in this specific example Qatar Airways from expanding its operations citing that it wasn't in the best interest of hard-working Australians and, and so on and so on and yet and we've seen how many years and years it has taken to get Turkish Airlines to actually confirm that they have a green light to fly to Australia yeah. I think I remember reading about this when I was 14. I mean, it was, you know, of course, when I was 14, you were what, eight or seven? seven. <laughs> I was uh, 14 minus two months. <laughs> right. And uh, if you say so. And, you know, they typically haven't been, you know, they followed this path that is a bit like India, a bit like Canada, where they want to keep them out. Unless, of course, your name is Emirates. 
where Emirates have been able yeah. to continue to expand and expand and expand and expand their presence, which doesn't necessarily directly benefit in the way that they would uh, would by opening up to to more carriers. And uh, and just this week, they're announcing a further expansion of Brisbane. It's always yeah. interesting to see how, I mean, that, you know, they're their intentions are very, very specific. If they're going to expand, it seems to only go to Emirates. It's really interesting. So double daily A380 to Brisbane now, and they're getting to add another seven weekly flights. So another daily flight from Dubai to Perth. So just seven weekly slots like that are literally worth gold to many foreign airlines in Australia. And Emirates just gets to add it so casually like that. And it's not just in the Gulf that they kind of take issue with the fact that it, all these slots and all this, uh, all these allowances seem to go to Emirates. There are a couple of airlines in Asia. And just recently, I had dinner with a CEO of one of the key players in Asia, in the Far East. And he said to me that his number one complaint in terms of market access, he said, continue to be Australia. He said he described them as just absolutely unwilling to mm. discuss any form of expansion without recognizing that the only way airlines are going to be able to cater to what is a continued growing demand is by increasing frequency. If you don't have the capacity, how on earth do you serve a demand that is not only very solid and, and is without capacity at the moment, but it is continuing to grow? And he said that they had sat with a delegation uh, that was a branch of the Australian government and then a kind of semi-government de delegation that seems to act as some kind of middleman slash lobbyist between the federal government and those that are looking to expand their presence in Australia, be it airlines or operators and so on and so on. And he said he just found the whole thing pointless. He said, you know, <laughs> it, he said we've had many, many conversations as an airline where we've just thought, okay, when they are willing to allow us in, then we'll come. But for now, we're not going to keep trying to, uh, you know, we're not going to waste each other's time trying to force something that clearly one side doesn't want to happen. Now, that was quite eye opening for me because I thought that's interesting because that was the first take I had had on that from a non Middle Eastern perspective. Yeah, that it is interesting. Another situation like that, although it's more recent and definitely artificial from both sides, is that the US and China are still limiting traffic so much between those countries. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 28 slots or 28 flights per week per airline, no, per, per country. So the entire US has 28 flights per week. That's four flights a day from all of the US, across all US airlines, they're allowed to operate to China and vice versa, which compared to pre-pandemic is nothing. There were hundreds of flights a week, but it's still staying that way. And even now we're soon approaching the spring or the summer schedule for 2024. There haven't been updates. Of course, this reflects the geopolitical situation, but it it just ends up affecting passengers negatively. It affects prices yeah. so negatively because Chinese airlines were driving down Trans-Pacific airfare so much pre-pandemic. And now that they don't have the same capacity, prices are much higher than they were before. You're absolutely right. And the the fact that we, I mean, don't you think the pandemic has made this worse? Yeah, I, I it's made a lot of things worse, including, you know, geopolitics, which geopolitics is a, the reason that 
aviation in many parts of the world, and in this case, the U.S. and China are is still lagging behind what it was. And it's always funny because when when people ask me kind of what I do or the key areas that I focus on, and I say kind of this geopolitical side to air travel and a country's aviation relationships with with other countries and so on and so on, I always get a kind of confused face response like, "What is that? Or is that that's the thing?" And it's it's amazing how it's more more of a thing than ever since the pandemic because uh, as we touched on some countries have just gone way too protectionist in in thinking that you know if an outside carrier is 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 here it means that everything in terms of every little bit of revenue attached to that carrier flying here it stays outside and it doesn't benefit which is simply not true i mean it's such a stupidly inaccurate and simple way of perceiving the you know the potential and recognizing the potential that foreign carriers have in terms of economic growth in terms of creating local jobs and and everything that goes into remember that one aircraft arriving from abroad isn't simply benefiting from 300 passengers paying the airline directly and leaving what about the fact that the airline itself has to pay all kinds of fees to the airport and then it needs operators it needs ground handling it needs catering from that airport it needs assistance it needs maintenance it needs ground staff to operate that check-in and ground areas such as the gate and so on. It needs all kinds of services that that local airport there will benefit from from the get-go. And that's before the fact that you recognize, you zoom out and you think that this place is now directly linked with this place and one stop away from this place. And, you know, you're facilitating the way in which globalization happens with aviation. The world gets smaller and so on and so on so yeah yeah it's just a shame that how much of this has has gone the other way since covid i know one thing i was thinking about just it's so crazy that a little i guess actually two years ago even the idea of flying over russia on any airline was taken for granted and we we're just like yeah of course flights from europe to asia go over russia and now two years after the war in ukraine started there's no indication that we'll be flying over Russia anytime soon. In fact, things are just getting worse and worse. So I'm just like, imagine that when we were young, our whole lives, that was just the status quo. Who knows if yeah. how many years it will be? Will it be 20 years? Will it be our entire lifetime? It's such a scary and weird thought to think that things can change so quickly and for the worse. And just look at no. another thing we wanted to talk about today, which, well, I guess this is a good segue. Look at Finnair. Their entire business model was around connecting Europe and Asia as the fastest link by using Russian airspace. And now they're in the worst position. And at least, you know, in the beginning of the Ukraine war, they were thinking, all right, we, you know, this is hopefully a, you know, a one year thing, a few years. But now it's looking like this is the way it's going to be and their business model of course is is not viable anymore yeah you're absolutely right because as you said Finnair would market themselves as quote the fastest way to asia and the only reason they were able to do that is because they had overflight access of russians of russia of russia's airspace excuse me and the the way in which that was revoked overnight as a result of the sanctions that the eu had put onto Russia following the invasion into Ukraine. In the beginning, those things feel temporary, don't they? They think, what, a few weeks? I mean, doesn't everything major, I, I guess, in the beginning feel temporary? Remember yeah. when COVID first started, <laughs> and it was a, a few weeks, a few I weeks know. to flatten the curve and, you know, all of the, uh, all of that talk. And then, uh, and here we are now with this, with this new reality. 
I guess the only part of the whole flying over Russia bit that I was always hyper aware of in terms of knowing that it was kind of a privilege that Russia had given to many carriers was what they had done to Norwegian Air in the beginning. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. They weren't allowing them Because, to fly over specifically. Yeah, it was kind of not really, there wasn't really a clear reason, but Norwegian Air found themselves in the weird position that they didn't have Russian overflight access for, for Russian airspace. And so they were unable to properly get to the Far East as 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 other airlines could. And it was a question mark. And I remember the CEO of Norwegian Air at the time came to London and did a briefing in the Shard. And in the briefing, he was kind of saying that they were just waiting for some kind of green light from the Russian authorities. They didn't know how much of an impact it was going to have if it kept, if if they kept delaying access and so on and so on. So I guess from that point, I thought to myself, well, this goes to show how vulnerable it is because of course, Russia has the largest airspace in the world. And you, at the time, pre the Ukraine situation, airlines just were able to, to to use this airspace in order to access the Far East and vice versa and so on and so on. And, uh, and now we have little Finnair, of course, not little, but we have uh, Finnair uh, from Finland, not able to to fly most of the routes that they were dependent on Russian airspace for without serious modifications, meaning they are no longer the fastest way to Asia and they are left with extra capacity. They've got leftover aircraft that are sitting around not doing much so they've given them to british airways and as we spoke about last week british airways are using some finnair aircraft and crew on their short-haul flights if you're flying ba to destinations including rome malaga madrid barcelona milan paris and so on some of those flights are operated by finnair and uh and and yeah and they're having to kind of seriously adapt their uh, their, their business model and with that let's look at what happened uh, in the news over the last 24 to 48 hours, which is something that is coming up ahead this week. And I, I wanted to know if you were familiar with the background of this, because it was a little bit unclear for me. But the headline is that in unprecedented news and, and, and an unprecedented development, truly, Finnair will essentially shut down most of the airline across all day of the 1st of February and the 2nd of February. So that's suspending almost all all flights and when i say almost all it's it's set to be that perhaps a few will operate but otherwise every single other domestic short haul and long haul flight will be cancelled across the first and second of february due to a political strike that's happening in helsinki in, in finland and finnair have also added that any passengers that were routed to fly via helsinki over these two dates are being rerouted elsewhere. They will not even be traveling to Finland in the first place to make that connection. The interesting thing here for poor Finnair is that this is not a, a protest by anyone at the airline, right? Well, it does include employees of the airline, but this is not an airline strike. So this is not specifically an only the airline union, for example, striking in order to bring Finnair operations to a halt. These are Finnish unions, so wider labor unions, that have been protesting over recent months against the government, which is more right-wing now, um, their plan to favor local work agreements over centralized work agreements. So basically, the plan, from what I understand, will limit 
the number of strike or the, the capacity to take strike action and will make it easier for employers to terminate work contracts. Hmm. So the union that extends far beyond aviation and into many, many other sectors, one of the main labor unions is the one that is taking the strike action, which severely impacts Finnair's operations, not just because of Finnair employees, from what I understand, but also from, of course, the other key areas of the aviation and air travel ecosystem necessary to having flight operations on the ground, controllers, navigation, and so on and so on. So this is this is the reason why. And uh, I mean, on those two days, it means that well over 500 flights are going to be cancelled. Now, on any normal day, Finnair would operate around 280 flights. So over two days, that's just under 600 flights. From what we understand, around 550, at least 550 flights will be cancelled. I mean, you can do the math very easily there that it seems that if there will be anything operating, if there will be anything, it will be a handful. And apparently only those passengers will be told your flight is is set to be operating. But otherwise, everyone else has to assume that your flight's not operating and Finnair will be in touch. As from as from today, Wednesday, that you are listening to this podcast, Finnair will be in touch to uh, to come up with alternatives. And the good thing is, this is where I guess the benefit of something like an alliance comes in, right? With One World and the capacity to rebook. Yeah, 100%. The thing is, the unfortunate thing in these situations is that you're not eligible for EU compensation when a flight is cancelled due to strike. The EU and the UK obviously have some of the most generous uh, compensation schemes. And Alex, I don't know if I did tell you, but I need to tell the listeners, remember about two months ago when my British Airways flight was cancelled? Whenever a flight is cancelled, I text Alex and I go, will I get compensation for this? Because even I can't keep track of it. And then usually you know the answer, but in this situation where the flight is cancelled and I choose not to travel and to take a refund instead, it's very unclear, right, in the legislation if you should get compensation or not. It can be a bit of a grey area because unfortunately I have seen both and experienced both examples where, you know, as you say, to voluntarily decide to go your own way and ask for and accept and receive a refund from the airline often exempts you from receiving some kind of compensation that that legally in the in the legislation would have been tied to the fact that you would have to wait for that rebooked flight and so on and so on because you you are waiting for your airline to fulfill its contract of flying you from A to B your Kuwait example did I mean, I wasn't so clear, was I? And, uh, sorry, this is why you ended up in Doha, right? Yeah, for exactly. Is that flight? Yeah. Okay. So, thank you, British Airways. We had a nice catch up. <laughs> so, the uh, yeah, it, it it was a little bit of a gray area, but go on. Yeah. So, just explain what happened again quickly. Eight hours before the flight, while I was sleeping away, British Airways decided to cancel my flight from Kuwait to London. Okay, that's fine. The only problem is there was no way they could rebook me until the next day. And I had a million connections on from there on separate tickets and everything. So basically, I was screwed. I needed to cancel the ticket because I couldn't accept a rebooking. 
So I accept the refund, which you're entitled to in that situation, but I incurred all these extra costs. I had a non-refundable hotel booking in London at that point. Um, I needed to book new flights to get to Oslo, where my next ticket was starting. And in that case, it wasn't clear whether I should get compensation or not, even though clearly the cancellation is a huge inconvenience. And for anyone who is, you know, less than a day before their flight, they're clearly planning to travel and their flight is canceled. It doesn't make sense for the legislation to just be if you choose to continue that you get compensation because, hello, for most yeah. people who are canceling their trip, it's also a huge inconvenience for many reasons. Mm. So, well, I, yeah. I would say that the the confusion is how the airlines relay that information to you. But if you were to only look at the legal text around EU 261, which is also the mirror law in the UK as well, over flight delays, unless the airline can properly demonstrate some kind of extraordinary circumstance, refunded flights should also, in every scenario, be entitled to compensation because they are compensating you for the level of disruption that they have caused you not compensating you purely because of what I said, that it's tied to you waiting them for the journey. So when you look at their legal text itself and you look directly not at the airline's pages, not how they are showing you how they will be paying you, but you focus in on that specifically, the overarching message that I, that I want at least listeners to take, to take from this is that even if you opt to not continue your journey with the airline and you do what Dan did and you, you get that refund, you should be putting in a claim for EU 261 in order to receive compensation. Some airlines will try to get out of that. That is the sad reality. That is why I have seen examples. Lufthansa of, group. But it, right. But if you are asking me uh, my own opinion on it, that is my understanding of the law in this scenario. And many airlines try to get out of this. Continue with your with your <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So basically, Lufthansa SAS... Some of these airlines are infamous for doing everything they can to deny you. I haven't had a like a delay or compensation claim with British Airways in years, but I submitted the claim very late. I think I did it like first week of January. I was just like, okay, let me just try that because I just figured it would be an automatic no. They're going to fight me. It's not going to be worth it. But I submitted it. And then last, I think actually before last week's episode, I heard from them but I, I wanted to wait until it was paid out. And on Thursday last week, so I think less than three weeks after I submitted my claim, they had already paid out £520 in compensation per person. Brilliant. There was no Brilliant. discussion. They just, in the email response, they said, yes, you're entitled to, co to compensation. We apologize for the inconvenience. Please don't respond to this email until you've received the money, which I thought was interesting because I guess somehow it delays the process or maybe it's just a lot of people are emailing like, where's my money after 12 minutes? But yeah, mm. two days later, the money was in my account. So super happy. Well, with what, that. what have I? I mean, I think I have always told you, right, that I have always had very, very positive EU 261 compensation experiences with British Airways, actually. I think they are one of the most law-abiding when it comes to this only in recent years. I think if you go back beyond three years ago, they were a nightmare citing extraordinary circumstance for everything. 
And there was an individual, I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast. Did I tell you once about the individual who I encourage that he definitely had a case and he took British Airways to court on one because he had claimed that his flights were cancelled because British Airways did not have sufficient de-icers, so de-icing mm-hmm. equipment at Heathrow on that day, nor did they have de-icing operators, which is what cancelled his flight. It wasn't the weather, the, the teeny tiny bit of snow that had fallen three days prior. BA kept saying, nope, it was snow, it was extraordinary circumstance, we were in bad weather, it was blah, 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 they will not be paying anything. He came to me, he said to me, this was back in 2017, he said to me, but I know for a fact and I can demonstrate through XYZ that it was down to de-icing equipment. And uh, I mean, he, he was in, he was a, a guy in the know, let's say. Yeah. And I, I reviewed his documents and I said to him, you should go for it. And six months later, he messaged me on Twitter. I'd totally forgotten it. He messaged me on Twitter saying, I, I took British Airways to court and they <laughs> let it go to court and I won. Nice. And I, I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. That that was a that was an amazing scenario. But in recent years, I think they've been really good with paying out. They've been they. I don't think they've been wriggling out of the legislation just like how the other European airlines have. So I was I wasn't surprised in a very pleasant way that BA just paid you for the compensation you were owed super quickly. And remember that you said. You just said to the listeners now, you know, I, I waited until January. No, you're not Australian. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> you, said, uh, you said, I waited until January for, uh, so it was quite a long time after. Remember that if you are filing a claim for compensation with EU 261, so either across the EU or, or the UK, UK. 261, right. Or UK, yeah. yeah. You, your claims are valid for up to six years. So if you have had any flight delay or cancellation over the last six years that you believe you were entitled to compensation because, for example, the flight was delayed three hours or more and so on and so on, so long as you have the supporting documents to be able to demonstrate that, you can put that claim in. It's six years for a reason. And these are really those type of schemes where, although this is incredibly costly for airlines, and of course we advocate for airlines, at the same time, we advocate for the consumer, right? And you guys are the consumers. So use these laws while they exist because they are really the type of thing that airlines would like to be seen gone. And, and, and the, you know, Michael O'Leary at Ryanair doesn't want any of you knowing any of this. Certainly <laughs> not that, that we can go back six years. So use it while it's there because these consumer laws that are there to protect you and you've spent your hard-earned cash at these airlines so they should be fulfilling their contracts wherever possible. Amen. So now that you're all going to go and become millionaires on compensation, let's go on to more Q&A. This question came via Instagram. It's from Sam. He says, Alex, I want to ask about UAP or which are unidentified aerial phenomena. Basically what we used to call UFOs impacting air safety in the commercial aviation sector. Sam says, quote, I know plenty of pilots out at a U.S. Coast Guard base who have had close encounters, and I also know some commercial pilots who have seen them over the North Atlantic. Many pilots are worried about reporting these issues due to the stigma associated with the topic. What are your thoughts? And he's ended it by saying, I love listening to the podcast every week and look forward to tomorrow's episode and more Gothenburg. Thank you, Sam. (laughs) I just have to say, I love that this question is like, 
not do you think aliens exist it's do you think aliens pose a threat to aviation <laughs> like it just assumes that aliens do exist which i love that this well, is where we are on on air episode 20 <laughs> listen he's not talking about aliens okay he's talking about something that the u.s government themselves categorize as uaps okay this is true. a thing okay how much do you know about this have you seen anything have you well, I try to, as I've said before, I try to not read many things that are supposed to make you suspicious about this or that because I just don't want to spend my time on that. But, you know, occasionally you see stories and then some people try to debunk them or explain what it is. Usually, I mean, based on what I've read, it seems like, okay, someone saw a drone or someone saw a flash of light or something that they mistakenly identify for something that they think is more serious. But at the same time, you hear stories that, you know, are pretty convincing. I don't know. I'm really curious to hear what you think about this. Okay, so I find this topic incredibly interesting, mainly following, prior to this I didn't, but mainly following a long interview I had listened to while driving. This was an interview that that came out in May 2022, and I was listening to it sometime in June. Actually, we're driving through Spain uh, to France, and listening to this in the car, I mean, that was like the fastest hour and a half ever because it was gripping. It was an interview with the former director of ATIP. ATIP was this government study program known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which as an organization that is an effort funded by the US government would categorize and classify and document all different reporting from around the US specifically on different, what at the time they called UFOs, but they changed the name because of the weird association. When we think of UFO, we think of a flying saucer with like a green dude hanging out the top of it. They changed it to UAPs, which are these unexplained aerial phenomena, because are we seeing objects or are we seeing something that is not tangible, for example, and, and so on. Anyway, it was an interview. I highly, highly encourage you listen to it. Now, it was interviewed with Megan Kelly. She is the former Fox News uh, anchor. She is she hosted one of the presidential debates during uh, during the uh, election season quite a few years ago. She now has a show, the Megan Kelly show. This was this was a masterclass interview with with Lou, who is the former director of ATIP, where he spoke about the first congressional hearing about UAPs. It was the first one to happen in 50 years. And he goes into detail, playing clips, citing the evidence of some of these Air Force veterans that have been there for years. And the common theme in all of their reporting over years is that when they see these UAPs or they make these UAP reports, not only are they absolutely just in shock themselves, but they're all saying the same thing. They all say they see these, in these scenarios, they see these tic-tac-shaped devices that are able to jump around and cross distances that, that are equivalent to jumping from London to Madrid in seconds 
appearing on radar, almost playing with them, approaching and then zipping away and appearing on a radar on the other side of the state or even the other side of the United States. And it remains unexplained. It's very difficult for me to get across without you having listened to this. So I would say go on to YouTube, type in Uncovering the UAP Mystery, Megan Kelly. Don't hang around because you want to hear her take on it because she actually doesn't give her take on it. She asks the questions that we would want to know because she starts off saying, you know, what is this? This is ridiculous. And I think she ends it by thinking, this is insane. This is unbelievable. And that was that was also my 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 thing with this. Have you heard about these kind of tic-tac looking devices that are able to kind of zip on radar from one side to the other? Have you seen the reporting about that? But I cannot wait to listen to this uh, this thing you're talking about, and we can discuss if it I more say in to you, episodes. If I say to you, Dan, it is gripping. Like I'm quite a skeptical person. I remember playing this in the car and thinking, I'm going to hear some loony going on about, you know, oh, UFOs are real, blah, blah, blah. And there's this one old guy who said it's real. But the level of documented evidence can only demonstrate that they are seeing something. Are they seeing a UFO? I don't know. Are they seeing a UFO? I'm not sure. Are they seeing, and, and they're very open to this idea, are they seeing incredibly sophisticated levels of transportation that we are not even aware of from the likes of, for example, China? Uh, who knows? And they, and they don't come to a conclusion. But just sticking around to hear the evidence is absolutely fascinating. And this is where I guess Sam's question comes from, because he's, he is saying that himself, he knows, quote, plenty of pilots out at US Coast Guard bases who have had these close encounters. And he even knows some commercial pilots who have seen them over the North Atlantic. This is consistent with everything that the uh, the ATIP guy said. Give it a listen, then we'll come back and we'll discuss. Okay, I can't wait. Just just finish listening to this episode first, guys. <laughs> Let's move on with questions. So, Ancila asks, just a quick question. What is the reason for the DC-3 on the podcast cover art artwork? Why not a 747? Oh, okay. I like that because we we loved the retro look. That's, that's the yeah. answer. Retro airline. We were going look. for retro. Yeah. Which is like kind of like the golden age of flying look. And, and we hope to be your golden age of podcast. <laughs> and also... Didn't we not? Didn't we have a discussion in the early days how we were absolutely clear it wouldn't be an Airbus or Boeing aircraft in order to not show kind of uh, uh, solidarity with either? Yeah, preference. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it turned out perfect. Speaking of that, don't forget to rate the podcast, guys. It is really helpful, and we appreciate it. Definitely. This question says, uh, this has come from Rick. He says, hi, Alex and Dan. I love the podcast. My question I heard in an interview with... CEO of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary, is that he might consider to pull out of the German market due to high taxation. This would leave a huge gap for other competitors to jump. Who would you think is brave enough to take the risk if it happens? So I think his question means, who would you think is brave enough to take the jump to fill a gap if Ryanair were to follow through with their threats of pulling out of Germany due to the costs involved with operating? O'Leary is known for making threats it uh you know yeah. work to his advantage so i wouldn't necessarily think that there's any actual indication they're going to pull out of germany and if they did i don't think there's necessarily some airline that's just going to fill the void i think lufthansa will be dancing around saying we won we won and just raise prices even more but yeah germany is a difficult market due to their high fees airports are not very accommodating to the likes of Ryanair who want to negotiate lower fees. 
but I wouldn't be too worried that Ryanair is pulling out of Germany. I think that if in the, I agree, I don't think Ryanair are going anywhere. I think in this scenario, this is just his negotiation tactic. But in a hypothetical world where Ryanair were to exit Germany, who would be kind of looking at sliding on in into a German passengers DMs? <laughs> I do think it could be Wiz. I think they're quite agile like huh. that. Interesting, because they they have much less traffic in Germany than uh, than Ryanair does. But yeah, yeah, it would be interesting. Wiz is sort of a I always forget they exist, but then I'm like, oh yeah, they're massive and they fly a ton to Gothenburg. But somehow to me, it's just like EasyJet and Norwegian are the European low costs, even though Wiz is massive. Wiz is huge. And the, the bit Wiz have suffered with their reputation recently because they do whatever they can to get out of paying passengers compensation. And actually they were placed under investigation by the UK Civil Aviation Authority and they've been ordered to clean up their act and pay passengers Good. what they are owed, especially passengers that were UK-based that were flying in summer, for example, from London to Larnaca or blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, I say London, Luton. So <laughs> anyway. And uh, and uh, anyway, hopefully I've been hearing, I've been seeing recently people are in touch with me saying that finally they're being paid. So that's good. Next question is from Yusuf. He says, what is the best American carrier for you guys? I believe Dan's would be Delta, but considering the mess that is Atlanta and how ridiculously long lines at TSA and CBP can be, would Delta still be the winner? That's so funny. Like somehow people just assume that everyone's favorite US airline is Delta. But no, I I, I think Delta is overrated. I would say JetBlue <laughs> on a day when they're not delayed. Um, yeah, for me, it's JetBlue all the way. Although I will say I think United has come a long way. Their onboard experience is much better than it used to be. Of course, food, terrible service, extremely hit or miss. But the seats, the amenities, all pretty good. Yeah. I think mine would be... Not flying in the US. <laughs> mine would be JSX. <laughs> JSX is my my favorite American carrier. <laughs> they are, the, of course, the kind of shared private jet what's what's kylie jenner's private jet called kylie air or something that's my thing about that drake has a 767 does he i know yeah is that is that called drake air or something it's sad that it's sad that dan air is taken it's a airline in uh, romania so (laughs) very glamorous dan air used to be a a big airline in the uk years in i mean in, in the early years dan air was the was the kind of subsidiary of this london firm that was operating all kinds of of london based flights from gatwick at the time then it opened up a base in manchester then berlin i mean we're talking like dan is everywhere is the 70s what can I 70s say? and 80s actually i've just googled now there is a nice shiny Dan Air DC3, like what like we have our cover on the, uh, on the cover. Yeah. Oh wow! Is has yeah. there ever been an Alex Air? Because that's nice alliteration. If I tell you what, that was my childhood. My childhood was posters <laughs> around my 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 room. Well, it wasn't around my room. I wasn't allowed to have, put them on the walls because we had to protect the uh, the uh, the look, <laughs> the aesthetic of of the place. Of course, I was only allowed posters inside of my wardrobes, which I now respect. Now that I'm old enough to to love interior design, and I now respect my mum's decision. And uh, 
inside of my wardrobes would be all these things that I would make on um, Microsoft uh, Paint. Oh, <laughs> and, God. Uh, and, <laughs> you remember? Yeah. Yeah. And it would all be uh, cutouts of aircraft with Alex Airlines on it. I mean, I, I have a whole manual. Alex Airlines was, was absolutely a, a thing throughout my childhood. But as far as I know, there is no uh, Alex Air. And uh, yeah, but that's a that's a great name for an goodness. Can you imagine if it if they did like what they did to Ryan and they just make it an extreme low cost <laughs> carrier? I think I would cry. Okay, I, would I cry. am starting that now. <laughs> Don't Everyone, dare. let's register it. <laughs> let's do it. Okay, moving on with questions. This is from Abdul Ahad. He says, "Will airlines watering down their loyalty programs, for example, Emirates, regret it when competition with growing competition? Sorry." Uh, from new airlines such as Riyadh Air or existing airlines like Air India, who are now making massive moves. Mm, this this feels like a question for me, maybe for you too, but it's really interesting with some airlines like Emirates or like Delta, which, you know, they infamously had some changes to their program last year. We always see when times are good in the industry, airlines become cocky and they reinvent their loyalty programs for the worst. When times are bad, they're suddenly generous. I have a feeling that given how unstable the world is right now, given that we don't know what things will be like in five, ten years, I think Emirates will not be in as strong a position. Most airlines will not be in as strong a position. So I think we won't see devaluations forever. And specifically in the case of Middle Eastern airlines that are so reliant on you know Europe and Asia remaining the way they are and people traveling a lot it's it is a tough and vulnerable position to be in so you need to be able to react and and catch people's loyalty when you can no i think that's perfectly answered the we had a question from bjorn i hope i'm pronouncing that name correctly how's it spelled apologies is he swedish b i think so b j a r n e a Interesting, because with an O or with an O with two dots is a very common Swedish name, Bjorn, which means bear. Hello, right. Bjorn. Okay. <laughs> well, he it says here that he follows oh, the Oscar and Dan account as well, so okay, I'm awesome. assuming Scandinavia. Anyway, he says, what are your experiences with EU261? I hope we answered that in depth in, in today's episode. We also had a question from Leon. Leon, I know, is a, 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 an avid listener to the podcast. He says, hi, Alex. I recently had a case with EU261 with Lufthansa and everything was very easy and quick. There we go, Dan. That, that is huh. some nice updated documented evidence that, that flies in the face of what you told us earlier. But he says, <laughs> he says, that made me think, do you have any insight into how many people actually file for this compensation? Let's say a Lufthansa A320 with 168 passengers gets delayed. How many of these 168 people actually file for compensation on average? That would really interest me since I wonder if the only reason why some airlines have made it quite easy to get EU261 compensation is because so few people are actually asking for it. And uh, and and that's the question. So hmm. what do you think? What, what, what level? I mean, I have a little bit of insight on this, but I'll ask you first. Okay, I have no insights, but... I just have to say that, say what you want about the EU, there are some things you got to love them on, and this is one of those things, because airlines are required by law to hand out information, whether it's physical papers or online information in case of a delay, 
that informs people that they are entitled to compensation and that they should apply for it. So in my British Airways situation, actually, they didn't send anything, which is not legal, I think, but they're supposed to inform their passengers according to EU law, which I would imagine makes a lot more people apply than than otherwise would. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very, very true. I think that, as we say, we've seen how airlines try to wriggle out of it. My insight is that it's less than 10%. Really? Less than 10% of passengers on an aircraft, especially, I think, when it comes to short haul. I'll try and dig up where I have these documents stored somewhere on my laptop. But from what I knew, the the average was that less than 10% of passengers actually claim for compensation. Unless, the asterisk there is, unless they have been informed explicitly, you are entitled, click here to now fill in the form and do it. Then, uh, then, then they're not doing it because they just think that many passengers think if they ended up finally at their destination because the airline put them in a hotel for the night and then rebooked them and they flew the next morning, they think that's it. The airline's done their job. You know, uh, okay, that that was the compensation. I, I had a hotel for the night, and actually, it's not. So I think that yeah, Leon, you you are right in suspecting that the reason why sometimes it's easy is because. Passengers are not doing it, which is why we said earlier in the episode, do it. You know, it's there. It's there to be used. It's as a consumer right. That's the so next question is from Ryan. I just, oh. Sorry, I just have to say that's so yeah. interesting because literally everyone stay on top of your compensation. Tell everyone, you know, every single person yeah. I'm friends with, I've told them yeah. you can get compensation more often than you think. Just keep it in mind because it's 10 yeah. percent is so ridiculous. Every single person on every flight should be requesting it so the airlines make sure to avoid delays and cancellations as much as possible. Yep, it's there to be used. Uh, The next question is from Ryan. He says, my question is, do you think the 777X will have a similar amount of issues as the 737 MAX? God, I hope not. (laughs) My dad was asking me this a few days ago. He was like, surely the 777, you know, that's the flagship. It can't have as many problems. I'm like, we can only wait and see. There is nowadays with Boeing, yes, they have increased scrutiny since a few weeks ago, but Mm. I really don't, I don't have hopes that (laughs) it's going to be some magic problem-free plane. I know. It's, uh, It's concerning, isn't it? Because what we're learning more about Boeing is this, this flawed safety culture that st- seems to stem across the company even after everything, even after everything being placed under the microscope, even after the fact that, you know, they suffered with this worldwide grounding and they, you know, this is now the safest plane after two years of us learning our lessons and changing the way. And then still we're having factory fresh aircraft arrive at airlines with loose bolts everywhere. Yeah. I mean, even after everything, it's it's concerning. What I will say on the 777X is that, remember, it's delayed until 2025 at the earliest. That means that should the aircraft actually enter commercial service with an airline next year in 2025, it will be over six years late than the original date. So it's this is already a, a, a very delayed aircraft. And the indication at the moment is that this aircraft will fly sometime next year. Let's see. That's already six years late. Also, the most recent documented evidence in terms of the progression of the 777X is that back in November, I think it was in November 2022, there were some issues found on the G9X engine, which is one of the uh, one of the engines uh, 
that was powering one of the four test 7779 uh, aircraft and uh, it suffered a tech issue and it was kind of documented as this is this is something they're working on i mean these are why flight test campaigns happen these are why they they trial all of this before they enter commercial service we don't know if there are going to be issues on the 777x lord knows that we absolutely hope there won't be but it is six years late we'll see if it flies next year okay the final question actually we've already answered in the podcast but i'll read the beginning of it he says hey alex big fan of the podcast this is from Jordy wilson he says i listened to the christmas episode on a domestic flight in madagascar from what from anantanarivo anantanarivo to morandava on an atr 72 operated by saridia a subsidiary of air madagascar that is very cool i like that, that. you listen so to our christmas cool. episode on a domestic flight in madagascar on an atr 72 i mean that's very cool thank yeah. you for that that's so cool. do you and then do he you said like to move it move it well of course i'm alex the lion so it says as an australian my questions for the podcast naturally concern our troubled national carrier last week Qantas rolled out it's truly extravagant new safety video so of course we have touched on this the full question was just about wondering if you know are are they right to innovate to get passengers attention or is it time for airlines to go back to basics and focus on the core purpose of safety videos to deliver safety messaging in a nutshell what do you think we have touched on it before but what do you think i think yeah why not go back go back to the pure days of safety and just make it time efficient just as I said, 90 seconds is all you need. I also think there's a way in which you can show nice destinations while also showing some kind of aircraft cabin and and something realistic. It It's crazy when passengers are having to sit there saying, oh, you see that woman in the restaurant where she's stowing her bag under the table of the buffet? That's supposed to be the aircraft seat. It's like, come on. Is yeah, that, it's how so much ridiculous. thinking are we expecting off of, off of passengers? But anyway, it has been a pleasure. I think with that, we'll wrap up today's episode and yeah. we'll get ready for a new week next week of On Air. I just have to leave us on a cliffhanger for next week to make sure you come back. I swear I'm going to forget to talk about this next week, but my dad is currently on an Air India 787. He took off 30 minutes ago and his airplane, which was well en route 37,000 feet, I just see now that it has turned around. 180 degrees turned around don't no quite way. know where it's heading or what's going on. So uh, I will hopefully know this soon and try to find out right now. Does he have Wi-Fi? Air India's 787 barely flies. I doubt it has Wi-Fi. Wow. Well, of course, we hope everything is fine with that. And we'll, we'll check in with that. You'll keep me updated throughout. And of course, we'll discuss on, on next week's episode. I'm pulling it up on radar now. Interesting. Okay, well, look, let's wrap up there so that you can make sure all is good with Dad on board the Air India 787. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you as well for your questions. We hope we've, we've got to many of them now. So if you uh, haven't sent a question before, but you'd like to, you know how to do so. You know how to reach us, uh, preferably on Instagram. It's usually the best way. All right. See you next week on air. Bye-bye. See you later. See you later. Bye-bye.